Thanks, Paul, for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation to be here today. I had a great visit so far. I'm looking forward to the rest of the day. So I want to start by admitting that my lab doesn't really focus on diabetes per se, but is really is interested in aging. This is the, the long-term questions that, that drive our interests, what really underlies human aging and whether there's anything we can do about it. That's something that people tend to consider to be inevitable and beyond our control, the fact that everyone's aging, but if you look around, it's very easy to find evidence that people are aging at rates that are a little bit different, which may at times be due to genetics, but uh, in some it's cases... All, it's all the drugs that you can say. Exactly what it's coming to. Partly genetics, partly environment problems. <laughs> and maybe a little maybe environment particularly up here. So, don't do drugs and shave your hair. Shave your hair doesn't hurt. I think, you know, the, the question we really want to ask is whether we can have a more targeted intervention, so not just make these general assertions about lifestyle, but, but know what it is that's underlying the aging process that's being affected by the way people behave or by their genetics, and whether we can really find targeted ways to take people on this Keith Richards path up here and, uh, and shift them down to the, uh, the happier sort of aging you see along the bottom, which looks like a much more pleasant process. And at least if you're a mouse, the best way we know how to do that is by calorie restriction. Simply restricting the number of calories you're able to take in in the absence of malnutrition. So this is the survival curve for mice from a typical calorie restriction experiment to show you what's been observed since the 1930s, which is that if you take this particular strain of mice and keep them on eating whatever they want, so the standard housing conditions, you get the survival curve shown here on the left. Uh, average or median survival is about 30 months for this particular strain. If you restrict calorie intake uh, by about 10% in the second line or about 65% uh, in the third line over here on the right, um, you get a very dramatic uh, improvement in both mean and maximum lifespan. So this isn't just squaring the survival curve and it's not just preventing one particular cause of death. If you look here, even at the, the luckiest animals in the control group, uh, at that point the ones that are severely calorie restricted, uh, just about 90% of them are still alive. So you can have a very, very dramatic effect, and this is really accepted at this point, that, that it's slowing something fundamental to the aging process. Whatever age-related disease you could model in mice, uh, almost all of them are, are really slowed by calorie restriction in proportion to this extension of lifespan. Now the question, of course, is whether this has any relevance for humans, or is it just something uh, in short-lived laboratory rooms? We don't know the answer yet for humans. But the closest we've come so far is a couple of studies in monkeys. So what you can already appreciate from the slides that monkeys that are calorie restricted look much better. Uh, let's see the one here on the right. Uh, still has all his fur and doesn't have these sores on his skin. Um, I talked to some of the people who are maintaining these monkeys earlier on in the study, and they described the, the ones on calorie restriction as very healthy and very angry. So not sure we <laughs> <laughs> necessarily want to completely emulate that, but certainly uh, from a from a picture point of view, they look much better. <laughs> In terms of the effect on survival, um, it was crystal clear up till a year ago that, that, that in monkeys calorie restriction did extend lifespan. So this is the, uh, the survival curve that was presented in the first paper that was published on monkeys on the left. Uh, and you can see there's a significant divergence here. The calorie restricted groups is in red and, and there was an obvious improvement in survival in the calorie restricted group in that study. Um, last year, however, another group doing a completely unrelated study, or a parallel study, a little bit different design at the NIH published their first results, and they showed the survival curve shown here at the right. Um, and so you can see these two dashed lines of the females, the two solid ones of the males, and there's really no 
difference at all. <laughs> and so, unfortunately, these studies take you know, 20, 25 years to replicate, and so um, we're a little bit stuck you know, dealing with these contradictory results for the moment. There are a lot of different, uh, different aspects of these study designs that might have contributed to this, uh, particularly the animals uh, in the survival curve on the left were in a much uh, less healthy diet to begin with, much higher sugar, in a little bit worse shape in the control group, and so it, you know, it may be that uh, that there's a big window there where you make things much worse if you let the animals get obese. Um, but the more important thing to focus on in the meantime, and, and what we can say something more definitive about, uh, is the reduced incidence of chronic diseases in both studies. So in the first study, again, it was very dramatic. Nearly, uh, there was nearly a doubling of the time that the animals went free of any diagnosed disease. Look in the second study, it's a little bit less dramatic, but still fairly impressive. There's about a 20% increase in the number of years the animals lived before being diagnosed with anything that could be detected by the investigators. Uh, this was borderline significant when everything was considered, but if you look at cancer or diabetes, they're individually statistically significant uh, improvements. And so there is a consensus at this point that, that calorie restriction really can improve health, uh, whether or not it's going to make you live longer at the end of the day. Can I just ask one quick question? You sort of went over the mouse data, but is that true for all strains of mice? You sort of very carefully said at the beginning, in this strain of mice, but do you see the same uh, beneficial effects of calorie restriction in all mice and rats? Not for all, for the vast majority that have been tested. And so there was this, there's a strain called DBA2 that was kind of famous for not responding to calorie restriction for a long time and was always held up as the one example of something that didn't. Uh, more recently, there was a group that's uh, done a, a cross between two strains and generated about 50 substrains and different combinations of values from the two, and, and they showed that at least at 40% restriction, which is the standard dose, about half of those strains did worse than calorie restriction and half did better. So this is an issue that, that's very much in people's minds right now. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time to design the next generation of experiments and, and expand on that. But, so certainly there are strains of mice out there that, that don't respond as well. But the typical response is that, is that there's a pretty good lifespan extension. And what would you say is the range of the positive responders? Do you sense of that? Where they would hit that line? In terms of that, what percentage of lifespan extension you get in different strains? Yeah, what would you say? Um, I mean, typically 20 to 40 percent lifespan extension is what's, is what's normal. But the range, in, I mean, sort of to extend Tony's question, in terms of strain related differences, what do you think the, what would you say the extremes are? The highest and the lowest, not the ones that have an adverse response, but the... Right. Well, I mean, there's obviously there may be some publication bias towards things that have extended successfully right. in the past, I mean, and, and typically that's, you know, at least 15 to 20 percent at the minimum to get a, a significant survival curve that you would find in the literature, and, and strains, you know, routinely people get lifespan extensions up to about 50 percent. Um, and some of the studies with alternate paradigms like every other day feeding, which also works in rats, people reported up to 90 percent lifespan extension. But the other, you know, the issue is that the, in many cases, the degree of restriction is very, pretty arbitrary. So, for instance, for black six mice or some of these F1 hybrid strains that show us other curves from, people have actually optimized, you know, which which amount of restriction gives the best lifespan extension. And you certainly can go too far and starve, or you can go too little and not get much of an effect. And for all these other strains where we've got issues right now appearing and need to consider, that hasn't been done. So, 40% may just be the wrong amount. All those strains may have an optimal. Are the animals here with caloric restriction dying of the same problems? It just takes them longer, or, or are they dying of different things? 
it's generally the same things, except when you send these mice to a pathologist, you get maybe 40% of the animals and calorie restricted groups back where they can't find anything. So there's a much bigger no, black box. No cause of death. <laughs> right. Not really. Cause of death. <laughs> but in terms of the, the pathologies that are diagnosed, I mean, for, so for black sex and most of the F1 hybrids that are studied, it's mostly lymphoma. Right? 50 to 60 percent of the deaths that are assigned to something are lymphoma, and that, that's what, still true. What about the primates? Same, same thing. With the primates, there's there really just aren't big enough numbers of monkeys in those studies to really get into too much detail on the causes of death. Well, and so I just wanted to, for this particular audience, highlight one one of these benefits that I mentioned, which was the decreased incidence of diabetes. So this is data from that first study we gave just made a timeline for the study of the two different groups and put a tick mark on here every time one of the monkeys was diagnosed with any sort of fluke regulatory impairment. Uh, and you can see that happens pretty regularly in the control group, uh, and there's just zero incidence of any, any monkey being considered diabetic or pre-diabetic in the calorie-restricted group. In humans, the number of controlled studies is very limited and that they're all short in duration with, uh, with very small numbers of people, so we really just have biomarker information. There's no real uh, disease-relevant information that's been reported for humans, but what you can see here is that the same types of trends that you see in monkeys and in mice. Uh, so this is fasting insulin, uh, reflecting an improvement in insulin sensitivity over time in, in a group of calorie-restricted individuals. This is the control group over, over uh, in the dashed line. The solid lines are calorie-restricted groups with and without exercise, and this group with the open symbols here was put on a, a rapid weight loss program to lose 15% of their body weight and, and then held at that level. So the group with the open symbols is actually lighter than the calorie restricted group and you can see not, not improving quite as much. So there's some indication here that there's really something special about being in that calorie deficit state. And to highlight that point a little bit, I want to point out that the, there is quite a bit of evidence from lower organisms that calorie restriction really is an active signaling process. And there are many examples like this uh, where you can find a mutant, in this case this is C. elegans, and they're, they're mutant for a gene called SKIN1. And if you look at the Savava curves for that, they're really superimposable with wild type under normal conditions. This, this has no effect on lifespan, no effect on behavior really, um, under normal conditions. But then when you calorie restrict these strains, only the wild type responds and gets a benefit even though the skin one mutants are also taking in less calories. So we think this isn't just a thermodynamic effect, that there really is some active signaling involved in gaining the benefits of calorie restriction. One other example I'd like to give to make this point is looking at the, the effects of calorie restriction compared to the effects of exercise. Uh, so these are rats in this case. These are two survival curves for, uh, for two different types of control groups here on the left. If you put wheels in the cages of these rats and allow them to voluntarily run throughout their lifespan, you get the survival curve shown here in the, in the dotted line. So there's a very reproducible improvement in median lifespan. The rats do a little bit better if they exercise. Uh, they lose a little bit of weight. Um, but then if you get down to the end of lifespan, the, 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 the survival curves always seem to come back together. So there really isn't much evidence for exercise improving maximum lifespan. However, if you cause the same calorie deficit by restricting food intake, that's this dashed line out here, so these animals were just clamped to the body weight of the wheel runners by restricting their food and not exercising them. Uh, and you can see that if you do that, these animals actually have a, a twice as big an extension of mean lifespan, and now there's some evidence at the end of the survival curve that, that you get an extension of maximum lifespan. Um, and so again, I think that really argues that it's not just the calorie deficit. There's something about the calorie restriction diet that really induces some additional benefit. 
The other interesting implication of this, I think, is that for rats that weigh the same amount, um, you're actually better off not having exercised. <laughs> and so all of this raises the question that we've been interested in for, for a few years now, just how does calorie restriction work? And are we really going to be able to find a way to mimic some of these beneficial effects of drugs and, and eliminate the need to restrict calories to get these benefits, even if they are going to, uh, to be applicable to humans? And so um, my lab's been interested in the idea that uh, increased sirtuin activity might be one of the events underlying uh, the benefits of calorie restriction and done a lot of work on resveratrol. But more recently, we've become interested in the idea that, that, that a decrease in mTOR signaling uh, might be another one of the key factors in, in calorie restriction. <clears throat> to introduce that to you all, mTOR uh, stands for Mechanistic Target of Rapamycin. You may know it as mammalian, but the, uh, the Hugo Genomic Nomenclature Committee uh, recently changed it to mechanistic, which causes strife within the field. That is the, now, now the official name. The, the mTOR is the catalytic subunit of two different uh, kinase complexes, but the best known uh, is this one, mTOR complex 1, uh, which serves as a nutrient sensor uh, responding to many different cues, but most, uh, or is best known for responding to insulin and amino acid inputs and controls many downstream animal processes, including most famously protein translation, but it's also now very clear that mTOR controls nucleotide synthesis and lipid synthesis as well. And so it's really emerging as, as a node that is centrally positioned to integrate signals from the environment about nutrient availability and make the determination about whether or not to initiate anabolic processes in row. So you can imagine that mTOR is really well positioned to be one of the things that's responding to calorie restriction. And in fact, since 2003, we've known that if you interfere with mTOR signaling, that is sufficient to extend life. This is the first uh, experiment to show that, which is again in, in C. elegans. And there's a lot of different strains on this slide, but these groupings uh, are the ones that are wild type at the mTOR locus, uh, despite the other genetic changes. And you can see the, the typical lifespan here for all of these strains. The grouping here is the ones that have been uh, had their TOR gene knocked down with RNAi, and you can see a pretty dramatic extension of lifespan. And then if you look at the genetically null worms, uh, it's about a 2.5-fold uh, extension of lifespan for deleting the TOR gene. Um, so there really is pretty good evidence at this point that TOR is involved in the regulation of lifespan. The first group to formalize the argument that this was actually the mechanism of calorie restriction was, uh, was Matt Caberlain and Brian Kennedy. Uh, they'd come out of Lenny Garante's lab and, and then gone on to work on TOR signaling. And so they did this experiment in yeast where they deleted either the TOR gene on the left or one of its downstream substrates, uh, SHIP9, on the right. And in both cases, you extend lifespan in yeast. And if you counter restrict those yeast strains, there's no further benefit. So this was an epistasis argument that TOR signaling really was the mechanism for the benefits of calorie restriction. Similarly, you can take the inhibitor of mTOR, which, uh, which it's named for, rapamycin. Uh, and treat yeast and get a lifespan extension, which is shown here on the right. It's the, the closed squares here. And if you delete a gene called PNC1, which is required for the effects of calorie restriction in yeast, you also block the effects of rapamycin. Now, in mammals, it's been a little bit more difficult to get at some of these questions about mTOR signaling because deleting most of the components is lethal. But one strategy that was successful was deleting the downstream substrate, S6 kinase 1. So this is the homologue of the yeast ship 9, that I showed before. It's a direct target for mTORC 1. And if you delete this gene, uh, at least female mice uh, do live longer. So that was the first evidence that this was really going to carry through to mammals. 
Uh, the reason for the gender specificity is that yeah, it's really still a complete black box. Uh, that's something that's, I think that's really worth thinking about more right now. I don't have a good explanation for that. However, in the same year, it was shown that rapamycin treatment of mice also extends lifespan. And in this case, it does work in males, albeit a little less dramatically than in females. So in both genders, the, the extension of mean and maximum lifespan is significant with rapamycin here. This was uh, one of the, uh, the, the data I'm actually showing you are from the intervention testing program. So this is one of the first compounds that they chose. And if you don't know, the intervention testing program is a, a program set up by the National Institute on Aging to test compounds that people think will extend lifespan in kind of an unbiased way. So outside, investigators propose their favorite compound and make the best case they can for it. And so they took about 15 of the best suggestions from the whole aging community about what would extend lifespan, and rapamycin was the only one that really worked in that first batch. So this is really a pretty dramatic result, given that this is a very lonely strain, replicated in multiple locations, worked in both genders. And if you've seen talks by anyone in the intervention testing program lately, you know that they're now doing a, th a threefold higher dose, and it's working much better. So this is not, by any means, the optimal dose of rapamycin. It's a little bit arbitrary, um, and, and I think we'll be able to get much more dramatic looking survival curves in the future. Uh, but regardless, it's clear at this point that rapamycin works. Uh, and so the question is, are we done? If we just found the drug that's going to mimic calorie restriction, and everyone should take rapamycin. Just a quick one. Do you have to start the rapamycin shortly after birth, or can you start it? What happens if you start it at different ages? No, so that's, a, that's actually one of, the, one of the most interesting things about rapamycin. You can start very late in life. So they started out, uh, when they decided to do this in the intervention testing program, they wanted to give the drugs orally. And rapamycin is acid labile, so you can't just feed it. And so they spent a ton of time trying to encapsulate the rapamycin after they ordered the mice. So they started with four-month-old mice, and it took them 16 months to formulate the rapamycin in a way they were happy with. And so they just did the experiment anyway, starting at 20 months, and it worked. Um, they got, uh, I think the data actually on that slide was when they went back and started another group at nine months of age, but the, the survival curves were almost superimposable. Almost the whole benefit comes even when you start very late. Which is unlike calorie restriction, actually, which is one, one important point that differentiates uh, rapamycin and the effects of calorie restriction. You, you really do lose most of the benefit if you start that late for a calorie restriction. Well, so as I was saying, I think the question that was raised by that data in a lot of people's minds was whether we had found you know, the perfect calorie restriction mimetic and everybody should just start taking rapamycin and we're kind of done looking. And at least from a metabolic standpoint, the answer has been no, rapamycin doesn't look anything like calorie restriction. It seems to cause a lot of the problems that calorie restriction prevents. Uh, in particular, rapamycin seems to cause insulin resistance when you, uh, when you start feeding mice on it. Uh, it has been shown at this point through retrospective analysis to, uh, to lead to an increased incidence of new onset diabetes and transplant recipients that got rapamycin instead of some other immunosuppressive regimen. Rapamycin is well known to elevate serum lipid levels uh, and may increase cardiovascular risk, where calorie restriction clearly lowers cardiovascular risk in all of the same biomarkers. And calorie restriction has been described as increasing mitochondrial biogenesis, which has recently been postulated to mediate some of its beneficial effects, and rapamycin was reported to inhibit mitochondrial biogenesis. So then does this imply that diabetes and lipids have no role in life extension? Uh, I, I think that's, that's probably true, yes. And in lean mice, they're dying mainly of cancer, and I think this Partly that, that, that this is highlighting the point that, that glucose levels and insulin levels and things are maybe, maybe not limiting in these mice that they really, really just need to worry about cancer. 
So then can we extrapolate it to humans who die from cancer, of course, but also die from cardiovascular disease? Oh, you mean so that the risk may be much worse in humans? Exactly. No, I think that's definitely true. I think that applies to the exercise points I was making before, that mice don't really need cardiovascular benefit, but <coughs> humans do. I think that applies to this, where rapid mice and where the mice were able to live longer despite elevated lipid levels in the humans might, might really be in trouble from some of these same side effects. Uh, which is why we've been interested in trying to understand exactly where these side effects are coming from. And especially if the mechanism of calorie restriction in rapid mice is overlapping, why should they have such divergent effects? What's the place we chose? What, what is the selectivity of rapamycin for mTOR? Does it hit other targets as well? And if so, which one? So, well, we're going to come to the, uh, the fact that there's actually two mTOR complexes that are both affected. Um, and but it other, does that. Other than mTOR. Well, it binds mTOR um, in a ternary complex with FKBP12. So it's also doing something to FKBP12, probably inactivating it at the same time as it's inactivating mTOR. And FKBP12 does have some independent functions that, that could be relevant. Other than that, there's really not anything known. Um, there certainly could be other targets, though. And it's pretty well known that people that by people that use rapamycin in cell culture, that if you use the lower doses, the 1 to 10 nanomolar range that are sufficient to inhibit mTOR1, um, you start to get more effects when you keep upping the dose. So, uh, I think there's more going on, but it's not really acknowledged. It's, it's considered pretty specific. When you say that rapamycin debate certainly led well, lipids. Sorry, can What kind of lipids are increased? Uh, cholesterol and triglycerides. <coughs> get horrible hypolipidemias. I mean, many patients on long-term long rapamycin post-transplant. Yeah. PGs and cholesterol is 400. <laughs> That's even worse than we get in the mice, but it's, it's also very dramatic in the mice. <laughs> so in any case, the, the piece of this puzzle that we chose to break off and try to answer was why rapamycin is leading to insulin resistance, where calorie restriction is clearly insulin sensitizing. We did that in part because of something we could model in cell culture. So for unrelated reasons, we had been treating C2C12 myotubes with rapamycin for increasing lengths of time and then stimulating with insulin. Um, and that's the experiment that's shown here, looking at phosphorylation of AKT as the response to insulin. Um, this is uh, no, no treatment with rapamycin 10 minutes and then an increasing time course of pretreatment with rapamycin before a 10-minute insulin exposure. And what you can see really reproducibly is there's a biphasic effect. Uh, there's a, an increase in sensitivity to insulin here at one hour or ten minutes. Uh, that, that's again, very reproducible. And then if you wait longer and you've stopped using rapamycin for anything more than about 24 hours, you can see that the response to insulin just about goes away. And so we were initially thinking about why that might be happening. If you look at the diagram here on the right, which I'll just be extremely oversimplified, but here's rapamycin hitting mTOR1. We think that initial improvement in insulin sensitivity is because of your disrupting a, a negative feedback loop that goes through S6 kinase onto IRS1. Um, so in the absence of that, we think you get this, this burst of insulin sensitivity. And then in terms of trying to explain what was going on afterwards, our initial thought was that mTORC1 had been shown to be important for mitochondrial biogenesis. So maybe by chronically inhibiting this, this pathway down to mitochondria, you might lead to some sort of mitochondrial insufficiency that could feed back and cause insulin resistance. Um, through the model that Gerald Shulman's really pioneered, provided a lot of evidence to support, which is that if you have my decreased mitochondrial density, that leads to decreased beta oxidation. You can build up long-chain fatty acyl-CoA in the cytoplasm, leads to formation of diacylglycerols, and through pretty 
well characterized signaling cascade at this point, you can uh, end up phosphorylating and inhibiting uh, the, some of the proteins involved in insulin signaling. So we started to look for evidence that that's what was happening in our myotubes, and we could reproduce uh, the data that had been reported showing that mitochondrial transcripts go down when you treat with rapamycin, PG7-alpha and TFAM uh, are significantly decreased in our hands, as others had seen. But when we started to look really at that Schulman model, um, we don't see evidence for, so for instance, for increased phosphorylation of PKC beta. It looks pretty constant over the time course where insulin resistance uh, sets in. And unlike the mRNA transcripts, if we look at mitochondrial proteins, there just wasn't any change over the time course of these experiments. So we really don't think that that, that model made any sense at that point, uh, that, that it was decreased mitochondrial density causing insulin resistance. And so we went back to the drawing board. Uh, and came to realize somewhat belatedly that David Sabatini's lab pointed out uh, a few years before that in certain cultured cell lines, if you soak the, uh, the cells in rapamycin for long enough, mTOR2 spontaneously disassembled. So this is the second complex containing that mTOR catalytic subunit. It's not acutely sensitive to the drug at all. Um, and in many cell lines, no matter how long you leave the rapamycin in, it never becomes inhibited. But in some cell lines, it does. Uh, and the reason for that's not known. mTOR2, uh, among other functions that have been described is a kinase for AKT. And so obviously this, this could provide a very nice explanation for why we were seeing decreased AKT phosphorylation in response to insulin if, if mTOR2 was falling apart. So we wanted to test that. And to do that, we took advantage of this uh, specific subunit Richter that is present in mTOR2 and not mTOR1. Uh, and so we made a precipitate in either the catalytic subunit mTOR plotted for Richter or the other way around. And in either case, if you do that, you can see here on piping for Richter. mTOR is associated at one hour of rapamycin treatment uh, when you get an improvement in insulin sensitivity. But by 24 hours, when you start to see resistance, uh, that, that association is completely disrupted, despite the fact that the proteins are still expressed. Uh, if you do the reciprocal experiment on the bottom, you get the same result. Uh, and so we, at that point, we're pretty inclined to say that mTOR2 is the mechanism accounting for rapamycin-induced insulin resistance in these cells. To try to test that more directly, we knock down the two complexes uh, SHRNA directed against specific subunits, and so mTORC one's knocked in here in the middle by targeting Raptor, and you can see if you look at phosphorylation of AKT, it goes up with or without insulin stimulation. If you've knocked out mTORC one, probably reflecting disruption of that negative feedback loop. But if you target mTORC two, um, you just about abolish the signaling to AKT phosphorylation from insulin. So we think, at least in the cells, that that's probably the mechanism that's again for rapamycin's effects. And from there, we wanted to look at vivo and see if this really uh, had anything to do with the problems in mice that we were hoping to study. And so everything we're going to show you for the next uh, little while is a, the result of a collaboration between Cassie Yee, who's a postdoc in my lab, uh, and Dudley Lamick, who's a postdoc with David Sabatini at the time. Uh, both of them have just started their own labs, and now independent. Uh, but the first thing Cassie and Dudley did was inject mice with rapamycin for two weeks, IP, and just see if that was enough to induce insulin resistance in their own hands. So this is the, the glucose tolerance test from that first experiment. And you can see that in both males and females, two weeks of rapamycin injection was, was enough to cause a, a pretty severe impairment of glucose tolerance. So the, the males here in purple on rapamycin versus red for saline, uh, a similar effect in the females. The first thing we looked at was, uh, was insulin levels, because there had been some reports in the literature that rapamycin was toxic to beta cells. So we thought maybe insulin levels were just going to collapse in these mice, and that could be explained in the glucose intolerance. That didn't seem to be the case. I mean, this obviously is not a, a comprehensive picture of beta cell function, but at least the animals were uh, able to respond and mount an insulin uh, response to, to a refeeding challenge. What was the 
Sorry, Kim. What was the rapamycin dosage in these last two experiments? Uh, two milligrams per kilogram, which was based on the dose that expanded, extended lifespan in the, in the other study. Although that was dietary rapamycin. So there is, you know, as you jump around between these rapamycin studies, there, there is a switch from diet to IP injection back and forth. So in any case, well, I think we didn't rule out necessarily that there was any defect in beta cell function. It didn't appear to be the obvious major culprit, and so we did an insulin tolerance test as well. Uh, and there we saw a very uh, pronounced defect. So these are males and females on saline on the bottom, and then you can see that the suppression of glucose levels by insulin is almost completely abrogated when, you, when you've had the, the mice on rapamycin for a couple of weeks. And so the next question was whether this could so be... So is there a difference in fasting when, that went on when you did the GT? Not much. Well, yeah, yeah, so there is a difference. Well, I mean, you can see it here, actually. Okay, there. Okay. Yeah, there is a difference in fasting. <coughs> and this one is actually normalized. That's percent on the uh, on the y-axis in this one. And so obviously we're interested in asking whether the, the cell culture mechanism we discovered was really what was going on in vivo as well. So we did the same types of immunoprecipitation experiments. Uh, and here you can see that if you immunoprecipitate mTOR, blafarictor, um, in liver, muscle, or adipose tissue, you've just been completely disrupted the, the intra-gene complex. And it's not on the slide, but Richter protein levels were, were unaffected by the rapamycin treatment. So this really is the complex coming apart, not, uh, not a change in expression of any of the components. From that point, uh, we wanted to get a better idea of which tissue might really be responsible. mTOR2 seemed to be disrupted everywhere we looked. Uh, and so we did some clamp studies with tracers with the help of Rexahema, who runs a core to do this at Penn. Uh, and so what you can see from these results is that these are all under the hyperinsulinemic conditions. Uh, and, and so glucose production should, should be suppressed here. And you can see the rapamycin treated group about really fails to suppress hepatic glucose output. Uh, but then if you use tracers and look at glucose uptake in adipose or muscle tissue, it's, it's really unchanged with the rapamycin treatment. So this really looked like a, a surprisingly specific uh, disruption of hepatic insulin sensitivity by rapamycin. And at this point, we were able to take advantage of uh, some of the genetic models available through the Zabatini lab and knock out mTORC1 or mTORC2 specifically in the liver and, and see if one of those would phenotype what we saw with rapamycin. And what you can see on the left is that actually, surprisingly, mTORC1 disruption in the liver does nothing to glucose tolerance. It completely rearranges hepatic metabolism, but glucose tolerance is normal. Uh, and mTORC2 disruption, on the other hand, really looks quite a bit like the rapamycin treatment. You get about the same degree of glucose intolerance. You showed in the myotubes that you had an effect, right? Some mm -hmm. insulin signaling. Or, so is the, is the rapamycin story in vivo because of drug distribution? Or do you think? That, that, what's, what's the difference between putting the rapamycin in myotubes versus? Well, it's a, I guess the weakness in the story is that we haven't really been looking at glucose uptake in the myotubes. We do see the signaling disruption in vivo, in muscle. We just don't have been able to quantify a major change in glucose uptake. I just wonder about drug concentrations in different tissues when you give it IP. Because most of the stuff, most of the rapamycin just getting to the liver and not elsewhere. You know, that's, a, that's a good question, and, and, and it may be. Um, we certainly, I mean, I can tell you we see effects, certainly. mTOR signaling is inhibited in, in a wide range of tissues just about anywhere you look, but in terms of the actual concentrations accumulating, I, I don't know. That's a good point. It really might be preferentially affecting certain tissues, and especially with the IP dosing regimen that we're using. You know, there's a big question of whether you get windows where the drugs fall in low enough that certain tissues are able to recover.
really was, was the next uh, the next experiment we did was uh, to take advantage of, the, of another model available in the Sabatini lab, which was a whole body Richter knockout. So this is lethal if you do it from birth, but if you use a tamoxifen inducible system with ubiquitin-C creating continued Richter pretty much an animal animal um, afterwards, and then, then then they'll survive for more than a year. Um, so we took some of these animals and, and planted them as well, and here you see the same sort of defect in hepatic insulin sensitivity that you see if you rapidly treated them, uh, and from Quantitative standpoint, this, this change in adipose tissue is probably not that important to the whole animal, but it's there, and, and that's a, one of the nagging questions we really don't have a good explanation for right now is, is why there is an increase into uh, in glucose uptake into adipose tissue. But we did see that. No change, however, in, in glucose uptake into skeletal muscle, which quantitatively is probably much more important. And so obviously the, the, the point is that the, the major defect here is, is similar to rapamycin, which is the, the effect of the liver. And so the experiment at that point was to challenge the whole body Richter knockouts with rapamycin and just see if we really could make glucose tolerance any worse or if there's any additive effect. And the answer was no. Um, if you take these animals, in fact, the, uh, the whole body Richter 2 knockouts here are these open triangles. And so if you treat them with rapamycin, you get the closed triangles. So there's no significant difference. If anything, they do slightly better with rapamycin, which might reflect inhibiting mTOR1 and stopping that negative feedback loop. Clearly, there's no worsening glucose tolerance in these animals with rapamycin treatment. And so that led us to the model that maybe the, the good and bad effects of rapamycin might be separable. That maybe mTOR1 was the right target all along in terms of improving health and longevity, uh, but they're having these off target effects on mTOR2 that could be leading to things like insulin resistance. And this is very difficult to address with the available models at the time uh, because, as I've said, all these components are lethal when you go to leading them. If you do something like take raptor heterozygous mice, uh, we tried that and they really compensated the protein levels. We really couldn't detect any difference in mTOR signaling in the heads, um, or even a really a statistically significant difference in raptor protein abundance, so that didn't work. Uh, but luckily uh, for me, Dudley, who was in the, the postdoc in Sabatini lab, had been crossing all of their different heterozygous strains, trying to find combinations that really would inhibit mTOR signaling, because they wanted to have these models available in the lab. And he had come up with this combination, uh, making mice heterozygous for both mTOR and mLST8, which seems to reproducibly inhibit mTOR1 signaling, but not mTOR2. Uh, and those, you may notice, are, are both components of both complexes. So there was really no way to predict in advance that this is what was going to happen. This is an empirical determination that it seems to inhibit mTOR1 specifically, but that's been the case in all the experiments we've done. And so this is one example of that. We're looking at phosphorylation of S6 kinase as an mTOR1 target. It's down a little over 50%. If we look at AKT phosphorylation, which is one of the mTOR2 substrates, it's, it's not affected at all in these animals. And so we decided to, uh, to go ahead and do the lifespan study on these animals and see what would happen, if this would be sufficient to, to improve lifespan without causing the inhibition of insulin signaling that you see with, with rapamycin treatment. And that turned out to be the case. So here's the glucose tolerance test on the left. These animals have totally normal insulin sensitivity, as far as we can tell, and, and yet they still live longer, presumably due to the mTOR1 disruption. And interestingly, these animals only uh, had a, a gender-specific effect, just like the S6 kinase 1 knockout. So this is the female lifespan curve. The males were superimposable, no effect. And so we still, as I said, I think that that's becoming a more important question to address why this seems to be gender-specific. But I, I don't have a good answer for that right now. And, and the only point I can make at the moment is that we do see that lifespan extension. It's consistent with the, with the other genetic experiment to address the effects of mTOR1 signaling. And so everything I've told you up to now, I think, supports the idea that, that mTOR1 really might be a good target if we want to promote health 
some of longevity in humans at some point, and that we really should be trying to develop drugs that are more specific for this. And having said that, there's one, one nagging question that I, I felt that we needed to go back and address, which was this idea that MTORC one's required for mitochondrial biogenesis. Now, just because it wasn't a critical factor in our, in our solid culture experiments over a couple of days, I, still don't, I don't think that means that it won't inhibit mitochondrial biogenesis over a period of months or years in mice and that that wouldn't have some detrimental side effects. So we really wanted to know whether chronic mTOR inhibition would ultimately compromise mitochondrial function in vivo and whether this would make the mice more frail or cause other problems that we just don't recognize because they're in a protected, caged environment. <coughs> and just to add one more twist to the, to the analysis of mice, I want to point out that in cultured cells, we also came to recognize that rapamycin has probably some post-translational effects to inhibit mitochondrial biogenesis. So in addition to the idea that rapamycin is, in, is maybe going to change mitochondrial number or density, uh, we also saw that if you treat it for as little as one hour um, or 24 hours when we still know that there's no change in mitochondrial proteins, you can get a pretty dramatic suppression of oxygen consumption. So this is data from a seahorse instrument. Each of these lines is oxygen consumption over time. Uh, so we're adding some, some different uh, inhibitors and activators. The last thing we're adding is FCCP, which is an uncoupling agent. So this is attempting to stimulate maximal respiration. And under all these conditions, you can see that as little as one hour of rapamycin treatment is sufficient to, uh, to significantly depress respiration. And as I said, we know that mitochondrial density isn't really changing at that time point, so this is probably something post-translational. Uh, and whatever it is, we know it's, it's also mTORC1 dependent, just like the effects on mitochondrial biogenesis. So we've knocked out uh, mTORC2 with, with uh, shRNAs against Richter, and that is superimposable with the uh, unmanipulated cells here on top. And if you knock out mTORC1 by targeting Raptor specifically, you get this uh, suppression of oxygen consumption shown here in the middle. And if you treat any of those strains of rapamycin, you can bring it down to a uniform lower level. Um, so that really left us with two questions to ask of the mice, whether we're decreasing the number of mitochondria, and separately, whether they're inhibiting mitochondrial function, even if they're still there. Uh, and so first of all, we do see decreased transcripts related to mitochondrial biogenesis in vivo, just like in the cells, um, particularly in the more oxidative muscles, something like the soleus muscle on the right. Um, we see almost significant decrease in PGC1-alpha and then significant decreases in TFAM and NRF1, which are key transcription factors from mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, and then when we looked in vivo, actually just like the cells, we, we saw no change in protein. So these are much longer term experiments now, at least uh, three weeks from the ones I'm showing you. Uh, and any of the mitochondrial proteins we looked at were still expressed at the same level despite the transcripts being down. We also got mice uh, from the intervention testing program that had been, uh, first of all, in this HET3 strain background that was used for most of the lifespan studies and that have been on dietary rapamycin for up to five months. And here, you can see the story is pretty much the same. There's some variation between individuals, but there's no consistent decrease in any mitochondrial protein that we looked at in up to five months of rapamycin treatment. So we don't think that, that that's a limiting factor for the, for the use of rapamycin in mice. Mitochondrial biogenesis seems to be okay in terms of mitochondrial numbers. And at that point, we turned our attention to the idea that maybe mitochondria, even though they were there, were being inhibited. So we had mice in a metabolic cage for a different experiment and went back and looked and saw that their beam breaks were showing a trend towards a decrease in voluntary movement. And so we thought that maybe we could draw out a phenotype. Maybe they didn't like to move around because the muscle mitochondria weren't so good. Uh, and if we put them on a treadmill, for instance, we might draw out a real dramatic phenotype. And that turned out not to be the case either. Once these animals were motivated to run with the shock good, uh, they ran just as far as the controls. The averages are shown here on the right. If you look at the individual traces on the left, it's shocks versus time on belts at the, the arbitrary threshold of, of 50 shocks is considered exhaustion. And this animal that ran the farthest was one of, one of the ones in the rapamycin group. So we really have no evidence whatsoever that rapamycin compromises endurance. And of 
course, that wasn't completely satisfying because there were lots of things that could limit endurance that might not be muscle mitochondrial density. Uh, and so we wanted to get a little bit more direct measurement. We also isolated cell-based muscle fibers, permeabilized them, and looked at mitochondrial respiration. And through a variety of activators and inhibitors, the rapamycin treated group did just, just the same as the control group. There was never any statistically significant difference. <clears throat> and so while that involved the accumulation of a, of a large amount of negative data, I think it's important and, and really reassuring if you want to consider mTOR1 a good target that's going to have beneficial effects on health in the long term. Um, and obviously the experiments... What happens to resting metabolic rate in We didn't see any difference in ours. Um, there is... I'm trying to remember if there's a study that's actually shown that in the long term. I, I don't know the answer. So. There's no, no dramatic changes, but I'm not sure if, if someone's shown a, a shift in the long-term treatment animals or not. Have you checked any changes in the future for fish or mitochondria? No, that, that's something we haven't done at all. Um, I mean, even at the level of a, I don't, I don't, we haven't um, even stained them with mitotracker dyes and looked just to see if there's, you know, visually any obvious uh, change in morphology at this point. Which would be worth going back and doing. Another quickie: Did you look at liver mitochondria at all, or just muscle? Uh, we did look at liver as well. There was no change. No change. <coughs> uh, but that brings up the, the point I was going to make, which is that the, you know, obviously there are many other organs where mitochondrial biogenesis is important potentially. We chose skeletal muscle because that's the, the tissue that was used in the paper that showed that rapamycin inhibits mitochondrial biogenesis. And so that was where we first directed our effort. Uh, but this is something we think people are going to have to consider all the time. As people move forward in rapamycin experiments for every given tissue, there's going to be this question hanging about what's happened to mitochondria. And one of the places we did look uh, was in the white adipose tissue. Uh, and there, uh, like the muscle, we saw a decrease in transcripts related to mitochondria, things like PGC1-alpha. So this is uh, control, rapamycin-treated, and then the control with insulin stimulation before sacrifice, and uh, rapamycin with insulin stimulation. And so, in both cases, you can see the rapamycin treatment lowers these transcriptions related to mitochondrial biogenesis and fat. Uh, but here we also saw a decrease in this other transcript, uh, uncoupling protein 1, UCB1, and that is something that's not expressed in white adipocytes, but is a marker of brown fat. And so, just to refresh everyone's memory on the, on the three types of adipocytes that are now pretty widely recognized, the, the conventional white fat cells that everyone's kind of familiar with, there's a second type of adipocyte uh, that's been known for a while called a brown adipocyte. These are now known to be to come from a distinct lineage and to be located in their own separate depots of brown fat. Brown fat cells have more mitochondria, these smaller lipid droplets, and they express uncoupling proteins so that they're able to take energy and dissipate it as heat rather than producing ATP. The third type of cell that's been uh, recognized to exist now is these brown-like cells that appear in white fat, which have been termed either beige cells or bright adipocytes. Uh, and they generally have the same features uh, as brown fat, but are known to be uh, derived from a distinct lineage and to be a, therefore a, a distinct cell type. And they're recruited to white fat in response to beta, beta adrenergic stimulation, which can be for things like a cold stimulus, or which you can also uh, do by giving drugs. And at this point, they're also known to be derived from distinct precursors from the, the white fat cells. So a big debate in this field has been whether these are coming from transdifferentiation of white fat cells, whether this is the process by which a white fat cell disposes of all its lipids and, and generates heat. That doesn't seem to be the case if you pulse label the white fat and then induce beige fat formation, uh, the beige fat cells are unlabeled. 
So there does seem to be a pool, a distinct pool of precursors available that, that makes phage fat in white depots. And as I said, the, the stimulus that generally activates this is beta-adrenergic signaling. And so we decided to do that uh, in the rapamycin-treated animals to get this compound called CL316243, which is CL here, uh, which induces the, the recruitment of beige fat. And if you do that, you see this uncoupling protein transcript go up more than a thousandfold uh, in the, in the vehicle-treated animals. And if you do that to rapamycin-treated animals, you can see that the response here is almost completely prevented. We really do see a, a pretty good block of this Beijing response in the white adipose. If you look at other markers of brown adipocytes, <coughs> here on the right now you see it less dramatic, but, uh, but the same pattern. Generally everything is blocked by the rapamycin tree. Does rapamycin affect survival in the cold? <laughs> we don't know that yet, actually. We're trying to get uh, approval from the IAPIC to do that now. <laughs> um, the effects on, brown, on the actual brown adipose depots are not that dramatic. We've only done two-week experiments at this point, and in the brown adipose tissue depots, they still seem to be largely intact with rapamycin treatment, but we'd really like to do uh, you know, longer-term experiments and see if, if the brown is compromised enough. The, uh, when, when Bruce Spiegelman was here recently, he was saying that the Beijing might be, if irisin plays a role at all, the Beijing might be related to shivering, dry, and so when you're shivering, you send irisin to, to adipose tissue in Beijing so that you get more thermogenesis so it's an alternative way to, to keep warm. So they might, this, you know, if you put the animals in the cold, they might not do as well. It, maybe it had to be prolonged, though. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting field. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to think about why exercise would induce this at all, I guess. That irisic connection is a little bit strange, and that you, you, wasting energy is the last thing it seems like you would want to do when you're exercising right. and generating extra heat. He, he was backing off <laughs> that <laughs> hypothesis and talking more about maybe shivering. Right. And you need more heat, more, you need to generate more heat so you get it from your adipose tissue as well as it's just shaking and getting muscles. Yeah, that's interesting. But, and so in any case, at this point we're looking, you know, this is 24 hours after treatment, so we're looking at a robust transcriptional response at this time point, which is, which is what people use this time point for. But if you want to see histological changes, you really have to treat for a few more days. We went up to five days, where you see now muted changes, the same pattern, but much more muted changes in many of the transcripts. If you have these mice and CL for this long, but this allows you to look histologically at the adipose depots. And, and so if you do that, you see, first of all, a lot of variation, um, and you still see some response in the, uh, in the rapamycin and treated animals that get the CL. Uh, but if you look uh, in multiple depots, such as Inguino here, which has a greater tendency to beige, and epididymal, which, are, which really resists beijing. Um, in either depot, you really do see a, a pretty consistent decrease in the amount of beige fat that's recruited in the presence of rapamycin. <coughs> so these are just H and E sections. These aren't saying for anything, but the beige adipocytes have more cytoplasm and smaller fat droplets, and so generally the amount of pink that you see in these slides is going to be proportional to the amount of beige fat. And if you zoom in and look microscopically, that's, that's the case, uh, especially in these particular sections, which we spent a lot of time staring at. Um, so you can see here that. Uh, well, particularly in the epididymal fat, that the adipocytes are much larger with the rapamycin treatment, um, and that there's really no beige fat at all in, the, in these sections from the epididymal region, which is already a little bit resistant. The other thing you might notice about this slide, if you're used to looking at fat, is that there seem to be more nuclei than there should be. <coughs> and that's true everywhere throughout the sections, but if you look around, you can find regions like this that really look kind of strange, and that only happens when you've got the rapamycin plus the CO combination. So we don't know yet what these cells are. I mean, it may be an inflammatory response, and so we 
doing some staining now to try to figure out if they're just T or V cells. But maybe a more exciting possibility is that these cells represent those beige precursors that have been recruited to the tissue but been arrested and failed to differentiate. And so we're also starting to look at some of the transcription factors that are thought to be key in, in, in the beige adipocytes to see if they're expressed in these cells. And we don't think any of the ability of rapamycin to inhibit beijing could be due to mTOR1 because the adipose-specific mTOR1 knockout has already been described and it was shown to promote beijing. So there's an increase here in DCP1 when you do make mTOR in adipose tissue. And in fact, that's what we were looking for with the rapamycin treatment. We improved the, the amount of beige fat that was present and we saw the opposite. So that leaves the obvious candidate again being mTOR2. Uh, we were able to get a little bit of tissue from mTOR2 null mice from the Sabatini lab. Uh, that had been stimulated with, with CL and did the UCP1 analysis. And here you see the same effect that we saw with rapamycin, basically more than a thousand fold stimulation of UCP1 with CL injection. And if you've knocked out MTOR2, that response is almost completely absent. And similarly to the rapamycin treatment, if you look at the adipose tissue of some of these mice, um, you see very dramatic accumulations of, of cells that we don't really uh, know the identity of yet. They, they, they have a very very prominent look to them, and it's very characteristic of these mice only that have the combination of mTOR2 knockout and the CL stimulation. Um, so one of the things I mentioned was that the, the way you stimulate these cells is with beta adrenergic stimulation. We're using a beta-3 specific uh, drug to do this induction, and so one of the obvious places to look for a mechanism was the receptor for that drug, which is the beta-3 adrenergic receptor, uh, and so this is um, early days for this data, I don't know if this mechanism is going to hold up yet, but from a transcriptional level, it, it seems to be true that rapamycin decreases uh, expression of the beta-3 adrenergic receptor by about 80%. Uh, if you stimulate the CL, you see some negative feedback on its own receptor, uh, and then still with the rapamycin combination, there's a, a statistically significant decrease in the expression of this receptor. And with the limited number of samples we have available, we're now got these mice in our own colony, and we're going to do this experiment with a much higher end, but in, so just pointing out the large error bar here, we do see the same trend with mTOR2 specific knockouts. So the, the model we're starting to put together is that mTOR2 controls expression for the beta-3 receptor, and that that might be uh, obviously required for the, for the Bayesian response. And so some of the current work in the lab is the, obviously asking if that mRNA level that I just showed you uh, corresponds to a change in beta-3 receptor protein expression that might be enough to account for a block and downstream signaling, whether we do see decreases in things like septic AMP accumulation, which are the downstream responses to the receptor. Um, and second, asking what these cells are that are infiltrating the adipose tissue, uh, whether they're either immune cells or whether we really might be able to define them as some sort of age at the same precursor population that's been arrested partway through differentiation. Uh, and so with that, I'll stop and sum up and just say that the model that we have at the moment still is that, that mTORC1 uh, really, I think, is going to be a good target for, for improving health and longevity and a good way to mimic some of the beneficial effects of calorie restriction. I think we need much more specific drugs to target it, that rapamycin is not specific enough, and that we're getting some of the detrimental effects through this off-target disruption of mTORC2, uh, which can lead directly to defects in insulin sensitivity, but may also be causing um, some metabolic dysfunction through blocking the recruitment of beige fat, which is required to, to dispose of energy. And conversely, if we were able to find something that would activate mTOR2 more specifically, uh, we might be able to sensitize to insulin, obviously, and maybe promote the recruitment of age fat and have something that would be usable as a, an anti-obesity therapy or to, to combat diabetes. <coughs> and so I think the, the, the effort to separate these two complexes, uh, which is not trivial because they share the same catalytic subunit, but the effort to really get 
drugs that really target one or the other uh, should be a major priority right now. I think there's a, a lot of evidence at this point that we really need to target them specifically and not to, uh, except in the case of cancer, not to use these two specificity inhibitors that get both. So with that, let's stop and thank some people who did the work. I particularly want to thank Cassie Yee uh, and Dudley Lamick, who, as I said, did, uh, really pioneered this project, did almost all the early work on this. Uh, David Frederick uh, is a graduate student in the lab now, has taken over some of this work, as well as uh, Shevastad Markaji and uh, Cassie Tran, who are new postdocs in the lab, taking on some of their recognition work. Uh, Patrick Seal has just a couple doors down at Penn, is one of the, the experts in, in beige fat, and is the guy who actually uh, did those experiments establishing that beige fat was distinct from brown. By, by doing lineage tracing and showing that the, those two cell types did not have a common origin. Uh, and so we're very grateful to have him uh, down the hall to collaborate with and to, to consult with and borrow reagents from. Uh, so that, thanks for listening. Happy to take questions. Yes. Um, so you, you showed the ethics uh, K1 uh, is really the main target in calorie restriction downstream But um, how about the uh, 4EBP that's another known very well known target? Does that play a role in the prior description? Uh, it might. So, so the question was whether 4-ABP1, which is another well-known target of mTOR1, is as important as S6 kinase 1. Um, and so we don't have the answer to that in mammals. In flies, there are some nice experiments showing that uh, if you overexpress 4-ABP1 to mimic the, the rapamycin effect, you can, uh, you can get a nice lifespan extension. That there's no additive effect with calorie restriction. So there, there's definitely some evidence out there that it's, that it's playing an important role. Uh, in terms of the rapamycin effect, rapamycin is well known to preferentially affect S6 kinase 1, but to have some effect on both. Uh, so I think it, it's not clear you know, how important 4-ABP1 is in the effects of rapamycin. That's definitely something to keep in mind when you look at developing new inhibitors that get mTOR1 and maybe get both pathways evenly. You, know, you may have some different effects than rapamycin, even that are mTOR1 dependent. Because rapamycin has this preference for S6 kinase 1 dependent pathways. Great talk. I have two questions. First, so are mitochondria good for you or bad for you? <laughs> when you exercise, you increase mitochondria, then you prolong life? Yes. Uh, and if you, for instance, uh, there's a, a paper showing that if you overexpress PGC1 alpha in skeletal muscle, you to, to increase mitochondrial biogenesis, those mice, it's very supplemental, but those mice live about 70% longer. <laughs> So I guess if you, if, if you exercise rapamycin-treated mice, what's the, what would happen? <laughs> no, that's a great question. I don't know if we can uh, do that experiment at some point, but we don't know. The second, more specific. So is the general sense now that mTOR2 is a necessary uh, active, co-activator of insulin signaling through AKT, and if you, if you inhibit that, you lose the efficacy of insulin? to activate AKT? I mean, that's, that's what you're... Right, so that, yeah, that, that's the first approximation model. It's become clear that there, are, there is some compartmentalization and certain functions downstream of AKT are preferentially uh, affected by mTOR2 signaling. So for instance, the actual connection from mTOR2 to mTOR1 um, doesn't seem to be there. It seems like uh, mTOR2 is required for activation of a subset of AKT that does things like FOXO, but that pathway that goes downstream to mTOR1 seems to be unaffected in mTOR2 knockouts most of the time. So there's a, a lot of work left to do to really understand where these different pools of AKT are coming from and how they're being assigned to the right targets. So an extension of that, we were talking briefly about the cell met paper last, uh, last night. There was a cell met paper last year that suggested that chronic rapamycin treatment might not be so harmful 
like the glucose intolerance that you get with acute or subacute rapamycin might be abrogated if you continue rapamycin treating mice. Does that then speak to relative distribution of mTOR1 and mTOR2 and the relative importance of these two complexes with aging? So, right, so, a, so the, the paper that is referring to showed that if you treat rapamycin, uh, treat mice with rapamycin for two weeks, they get much worse, and by about six months in, uh, the animals were more insulin sensitive and were still glucose intolerant, which is a little bit of a paradox in that paper. Um, but so there's two, they have an optimistic explanation and a, and a pessimistic explanation for what's actually happening there. So one is that that group um, actually pulsed the rapamycin, they gave double doses every second day. And there's been a lot of discussion in the field about, because of the mechanism that rapamycin affects the two complexes by, that you might be able to do this, where if you just allow mTOR2 to assemble, give a little window, a little breathing room for that complex to be reassembled, it's then resistant to rapamycin until it gets disrupted again. So you could potentially pulse rapamycin in a way that allows mTOR2 to assemble, inhibit mTOR1 then over a couple of days while mTOR2 uh, is still intact, then pulse it again, and that, that may be what's happened in this case. The mice may have just gotten a little bit better at triggering rapamycin or expressed a little bit more of the protein components so that they were able to maintain mTOR2 activity. But the pessimistic explanation, which I, I'm leaning towards a little bit, I have to admit, is that, that rapamycin has been reported to be toxic to beta cells. <coughs> you know, if you look at the actual data in that paper closely, the mice, despite being more insulin sensitive, have high, higher glucose levels on the rapamycin treatment and much lower insulin levels, which is driving the calculated improvement in insulin sensitivity. There's actually one paper showing that rapamycin inhibits alpha cells as well over time. So my, my bias is that maybe in those mice you're inhibiting islets altogether, that you're holding them in balance a little bit because moving on and uh, insulin are both down, and that's why you get an apparent insulin sensitivity when you inject insulin. But I, I think the fact that the mice are glucose intolerant clearly uh, means it's not necessarily a beneficial effect. All right. Very nice. Thank you.